Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, why SB4 in Texas isn't being met with the same kind of anger that SB 1070 was in Arizona more than a decade ago. And we get to know the man behind the drag queen, Barbara Seville. But first, Governor Katie Hobbs' budget proposal is out, and the Republicans who run the state legislature say it is largely dead on arrival. We are now facing a pretty significant budget deficit in our state after after spending away most of a budget surplus last session. The governor's pitch for where to spend the state's $16 billion budget says it would leave us about $580 million in the black. But that is dependent on a few major cuts that the GOP will pretty much never support. Here to tell us more is Wayne Shetsky from KJZZ's Politics Desk. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning. Okay, so what is the projected deficit at this point? It sounds like it's changed. It, it depends on who you ask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next uh, next year's budget has, a, if none of these cuts are made, has a projected shortfall of around nine hundred million dollars, according to the governor's budget folks. Mm-hmm. But the folks at the legislature are a little more pessimistic. They have their own budget staff who estimates it at closer to $1.7 billion. So a pretty significant uh, difference there. That is a big difference. Okay, so let's talk about Hobbs' plan here. What are the big cuts that she wants to make? So one of the major cuts she wants to make is she wants to reform the school voucher program. She wants to put a rule back in that would require that a student was in public school for 100 days before they qualify Mm -hmm. for a voucher. Uh, according to estimates based on some, you know, there's no exact number here, but they estimate that could remove as many as 49,000 kids from the program, which currently has around 80,000 kids in it. So that's and would save wow. around $244 million every year. That's one of those uh, dead on arrival proposals. Republicans have said over and over and over again, it won't happen. Uh, De- Representative David Livingston, who um, the appropriations chair told me, you know, we'd shut down the government before we... <laughs> do any of that stuff to the ESA program. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, those would be big cuts to the ESA program. And the issue there being, right, that many Democrats have been critical of the expansion of this voucher program because many of the students who have signed up for it were never in a public school. They were already in private schools. Yes. So that's that's the estimate. It's just this is based on numbers. um, Yeah. Showing basically that they believe that only about a thousand of the kids who are in the program now came from the public school Mm. system and that the rest were that a lot of the other added 49,000 or so were kids who are already paying full freight and so they don't believe they would go back into the public school system, number one. So they don't think it's going to be an ad, much of an added expense hmm. on the public school budgets. Um, but it would save hundreds of millions of dollars in the general fund budget that won't go to vouchers if it went into effect. She also wants to cut what are called school tuition organizations. What are these? Uh, so these are this is a program that's been around for a long time. It was another alternative way basically to help kids pay for private school tuition. And individuals or corporations can essentially give money to these school tuition organizations, which then disperse them to students uh, who apply or families who apply to pay for that tuition. Right. And they get a, the individuals or companies who made those donations get a get a tax refund in uh, for making those donations. Okay. Another thing that the GOP uh, will not support. Exactly. Cutting. That, you know, they've been big fans of this for a long time. They say a lot of, you know, students rely on this, especially low-income students who are going to private schools, and they do not want to touch it. Okay. So where does that leave her budget calculations if those two big cuts are not going to happen? 
even with her rosier projections, um, that would leave us with a projected deficit. Mm. Uh, if you remove both of those, those things, so her budget would be out of whack. So she'd have to make cuts elsewhere. And Republicans have said, you know, she knows we're not going for this, that, but she had to put it in there anyway because it's one of her policy positions. Right. Okay. So is this sort of a, a first shot? Is there a backup plan from the Hobbs administration? Uh, hard to say. Uh, <laughs> they've they assured reporters during a budget presentation who repeatedly pushed them on this that that there is, but they wouldn't share the details of what that is. Uh, senator John Kavanaugh, uh, another uh, leading Republican senator in charge of appropriations, also pushed for them to reveal Plan B yesterday mm-hmm. during a meeting, but. They did not do so. OK. So are there places anywhere in this budget proposal where Republicans could get on board? Yes, there is. Uh, the governor is also proposing rolling back almost $400 million in transportation projects, for instance, road projects, that type of thing that were included in previous budgets. And I, the House, uh, Livingston, the House Appropriations Chair, actually told me, you know, he could get on board with that. He's a little concerned that all the projects on the list were Republican projects. <laughs> but he said generally he can get on board with the idea of stalling or or stopping some of those projects. Okay. Anything else? Uh, Yeah. There was also a WIFA, which is the Water Infrastructure Authority, really obscure agency until about two years ago when (laughs) under former Governor Doug Ducey, it was expanded to fund projects to bring water into the state. Uh, Part of that deal, uh, legislators said, we're going to send a billion dollars to that agency over three years. So that would be $333 million in the next budget. But Hobbs is scaling that all the way back to $33 million, just saying... We're not saying this is not a priority, but we just don't have the money in the budget this year to put it in. A lot of that money, or some of it at least, was the talk was about desalination, investing in that? Uh, yes. Uh, so Ducey was a big supporter of this project to uh, build a desalination plant in Mexico and either pu- pipe that water back up here to Phoenix to, to help offset some of our water shortages. And yeah, the scuttlebutt was that a lot of that billion might be used to help finance that project. Sure. Okay. So the GOP will also put out their budget priorities in some form at some point here. Do we know what those look like? Uh, They they gave a response to Hobbs' budget that was very broad strokes. So we didn't really get any numbers. Uh, And then Livingston also told me that they will come out with cuts they want to see that aren't included in Hobbs' budget proposal. Because obviously, even if they went for the ESA... (laughs) Uh, cut, which they're not going to do, under the legislative predictions of a $1.7 billion deficit, that still leaves hundreds of millions of dollars that need to be cut. So no matter whose projection you're going under, they're going to have to come up with more cuts. And Republicans, you know, they haven't been shy about the fact that they like to cut government. And so I imagine they will be coming out with that plan uh, shortly. Okay. Before I let you go, Wayne, there was a big decision that came out just yesterday about the no labels party in our state and sort of the future of what that could look like if it ends up on the ballot. It can end up on the ballot now. Secretary of State Adrian Fonta has basically lost this case at this round, at least. Explain what happened here. So, yeah, no labels, which is, you know, the the so-called moderate group that's been flirting with a third party presidential run, right. filed in Arizona, got recognized status so they can't appear on the ballot. But they didn't want to run candidates in any other Races. You but know, some candidates did want to run another race. But individuals ticket, yeah. who registered with their party have right. filed. At least five, I think, I saw on the Secretary of State's website for Congress, Senate, uh, State Legislature, Corporation Commission, those types of things. Okay. But no labels asked Fontes, hey, please don't place these people because we don't support them. We don't want them running under our name. Fontes said he believes he's legally obligated. So no labels filed a lawsuit asking the court to decide. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yes, and yesterday a judge uh, sided with no labels and said – Essentially, that the uh, state cannot force them to back candidates they don't want to back, and that 
Candidates need no labels approval if they want to be on the ballot. So does this mean, I mean, Fontes says he will appeal this, but does this essentially mean at least this ruling that no labels could put a presidential candidate on the ballot in Arizona? Yeah. And that that part wasn't really in question because uh, they did qualify as a political party. Mm -hmm. And so um, what this answers basically is that they can choose only to put a president and vice presidential candidate on the ballot rather than, you know, what has been argued by Fontes and others is that, no, you're a political party now, so... Whoever signs up as a member of your party and registers is free to to run like any Democrat, any Republican, any Green, any Libertarian. All right. And of course, no candidate yet, but many political implications there that I'm sure we'll talk about in the future. Wayne Shutsky with KJZZ's Politics Desk. Wayne, thanks as always. Thank you. Late last year, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law a measure that many liken to maybe the most controversial law ever passed here in Arizona, SB 1070. The 2010 immigration measure was dubbed the Show Me Your Papers law, and it sparked protests and boycotts of our state far and wide. The U.S. Supreme Court largely gutted the law later, but now Texas's SB 4 is bringing up memories of many call a, what many call a stain on Arizona's history. Only thing is, SB before doesn't seem to be evoking the same kind of vitriol in Texas as 1070 did here more than a decade ago. While immigration is legally under federal control, SB4 makes it a state crime in Texas to cross illegally between ports of entry, where 83 percent of migrant apprehensions take place. It also allows state judges to order deportations, bypassing immigration courts, and it indemnifies officers who apprehend migrants there. Terry Green Sterling is a longtime Arizona journalist who has covered the border and immigration here for decades. She's co-author of the book Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and the Latino Resistance. And she told me SB4 has also been likened to another controversial immigration policy. It's been likened to Title 42. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's been likened to Title 42 which was lifted by the Biden administration earlier this in 2023, the reason it has been likened to Title 42 is because it doesn't offer migrants the opportunity to have their day in immigration court. Right, right. And Title 42 was sort of this policy that allowed officers, immigration officers, to very quickly and without any process return migrants across the border. Precisely. So this is likened to Title 42, but much of the conversation around this, many of the headlines around SB4 have been that it's reminiscent of Arizona's own SB 1070, which was a big and controversial law that was largely thrown out by the Supreme Court more than a decade ago. So let's go back to that then and tell us what exactly SB 1070 did. All right. Senate Bill 1070 uh, made it a crime for all immigrants not to carry papers. It uh, required police to check the immigration status of each person that they come in contact with if they have a reasonable suspicion Mm -hmm. that the person is in Arizona illegally. And that had a lot of other provisions. For instance, um, it allowed citizens to sue state police who didn't enforce immigration. Hmm. That's why it was sort of the the show me your papers law is what it was. That's why it was all right. How is this law then different from 1070? Do you think this is a fair sort of likening? Well, I think they're both extreme in their own ways. And I I think what's really important for us is to go back a little bit in history and understand the context of SB 1070. Yeah. 
and then understand the context of the passage of Senate Bill 4. So let's talk about that, because this was nearly 15 years ago, 2010, when SB 1070 passed here. I was like a student journalist, and I remember, like, the massive reaction that 1070 received. You covered this extensively at the time. You've covered it extensively since. But this was not even just national outrage. Internationally, it was a big deal, right? SB 1070 was a big deal, and many Republicans had a concern that it went too far. Many Republicans in the state house had a, had a concern that it was too extreme. But then there was a moment in time that enabled the passage of SB 1070 in the legislature, and that was when a rancher was murdered mm-hmm. on the border. An American rancher was murdered on his ranch on the border, and the murder was widely blamed on a faceless, undocumented immigrant who never surfaced, who has never surfaced in all these years. That crime remains unsolved. Mm-hmm. Um, And that outrage that came from the murder of an American on his own property prompted the passage of SB 1070. And immediately, the reaction was, as you said, national, international, and local. Mm -hmm. One of the very important differences between Senate Bill 4 and SB 1070 is that all the reaction and the fighting and the opposition to SB 1070, most of it was based in Maricopa County. Mm -hmm. And we already had a very, very vibrant, well-organized group of activists who opposed it. Mm -hmm. And they had been organized because of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who had rounded up immigrants and had been accused and later found guilty in court of racial profiling of, of people with brown skin. So Arpaio was by then sort of receding into the background Mm -hmm. by the time SB 1070 was passed. But we had this vibrant group of activists, this very well-organized group of activists, and they were very effective and they had, you know, rock stars came to Phoenix and led these massive marches against SB 1070. They, these activists coordinated with national activists all over the country National media swept into Phoenix. I remember being down at the Capitol and seeing rows and rows of trucks from, you know, TV trucks from all over the country. Um, Conventions were boycotted. Businesses lost money. Yeah. So that's the landscape around immigration in Arizona nearly 15 years ago and the sort of reason why we saw maybe that massive reaction to 1070. Um, why do you think that is not happening largely in in reaction to SB4 in Texas today? I think we're at a different point in history, and I think there's some geographical differences and some cultural differences that have happened that have kind of prevented the same kind of activism, the same kind of outrage. Um, first of all, we are at a time in history when there is an unprecedented surge of migration to our southern border. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have that at that point in Arizona. We had more migrants crossing into Arizona than any place else, but we didn't have these numbers. So 3.1 million attempted border crossings uh, in the fiscal year from 2022 to 2023, and 83% were between the ports of entry. Yeah, 600,000 are estimated to have gotten away. Mm-hmm. 1.8 million have stayed. This is all from the New York Times. 
1.5 million new cases were added to the immigration court. Yeah. So we're at the point where everything is broken. The asylum system doesn't work. The Border Patrol is overwhelmed. The immigration courts are overwhelmed. And we're bogged down. We weren't at that point in Arizona 15 mm-hmm. years ago. The other thing I think is that all the foment for SB 1070 originated in Maricopa County, which is a very small space compared to Texas, the state right? Of Texas, and the yeah. Texas border, yeah. in fact. The other thing that's happening is that activist groups in Texas are so overwhelmed with taking care of the of the migrants, giving them food, giving them medical care, helping them find transportation. All these things are so consuming them that they they can't fight politically with the same fervor that we had in Maricopa County. They're just not as organized mm-hmm. as we were in Maricopa County. We talked about how there were two moments in history that sort of galvanized the legislature and, and allowed the passage of these extreme bills. Yeah. Um, in Arizona, again, it was the murder of the rancher, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and the popularity of Joe Arpaio, the political popularity yeah. that made made him have a lot of imitators in the legislature. But in Texas, it is just the sheer numbers, hmm. just the sheer numbers of people crossing the border. And the sense that something has to change. And the sense among many that something has to change and something has to be fixed. Mm. And the irony is that the passage of these local immigration laws, in fact, deflect attention from the fact that Congress has got to fix the system. Right. I wanted to ask you about that and how you think these local laws like 1070 at the time and like SB4 now sort of contribute to or maybe detract from the effort in Congress, which has been perennial but never successful, to complete some kind of immigration reform. Well, they very much do. I mean, because all the focus goes onto the state laws and those state laws are, you know, go through a long process of being challenged in the courts. SB4 is being challenged not only by the federal government, mm-hmm. but also by local activists like the ACLU. Yeah. And so, you know, it's dis- it's a distraction. Mm-hmm. It's a distraction. And we don't know how the courts are going to rule that might be a difference between SB 1070 again and Senate Bill 4. We're pretty sure that SB 4 is going to go to the Supreme Court. Right. Right. And SB 1070 went to the Supreme Court. But one of the differences is the makeup of the court. Mm -hmm. We don't know if this more conservative court is going to follow judicial precedent and say, hey, the federal government has to enforce immigration and the states cannot. Mm -hmm. Or we don't know if the Supreme Court is going to break with precedent and say, well, this is the state's issue. This is the state's issue because it impacts the states the most. We just don't know. So that's a big difference, too. Yeah. We'll have to watch for what happens there. All right. Terry Green Sterling, longtime Arizona journalist and co-author of Driving While Brown, Sheriff Joe Arpaio and the Latino Resistance. Terry, thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, a Valley drag queen on how growing up as the youngest of nine kids made her the performer she is today. Whether it's acting out (laughs) or literally acting, sometimes you have to do something to uh, be the star of the show to get, you know, some attention. 
how she became embroiled in an Arizona political controversy coming up. But first, a state Senate committee later this morning is expected to consider a bill that would require HOAs to allow homeowners to fly the an appeal to heaven flag. State law already requires HOAs to allow residents to fly certain flags, including the Gadsden flag, service branch flags, first responder flags, the Arizona state flag, and any historic version of the American flag, among others. The An Appeal to Heaven flag features a pine tree against a white backdrop with the words An Appeal to Heaven above it. The flag dates back to the American Revolution, but in recent years it has been adopted as a symbol of Christian nationalism. But how do flags that were designed for one cause come to be associated with another? To find out, my co-host Mark Brody spoke with Leslie Honor, a professor at Baylor University where she studies the rhetoric of symbols and symbolism. And they started with the role flags generally play in terms of people identifying who they are and what they stand for. There is a basic human need to both belong to a community, but to also identify oneself in a unique way. And flags or other symbols allow that complexity of identification. We can fly a flag to say, I belong to this nation, to this state, to this community. But it also marks our belonging to the public in a way that helps us identify who we are both within a community and as an individual. For how long has it been a thing that people will fly flags other than, for example, their state flag or the United States flag or maybe even like the flag of a sports team, but they, you know, flags that relate to other causes? We've seen a steady increase in flags as a form of identification since about the 1980s. If you think about how LGBTIQ plus flags came into being, as well as other cause flags. So think of um, even leading into the 1980s, Palmia flags, mm-hmm. uh, missing in person flags, those types of symbols began to take on more popularity as their became a more of a feeling of alienation among the populace. So if you look at U.S. culture, for example, you'll see those flag sales and those modes of identification begin to increase in the 80s and 90s significantly. By the time we get to the 2000s and now the 20-teens, those forms of identification have become even more compelling, not just to a domestic audience, but to whole sorts of audiences. How much of that is new flags that are being designed or developed for particular causes or communities? And how much of this is people looking back at older flags? I'm thinking, for example, of the the Gadsden flag, the Don't Tread on Me flag, which is a very old one, which was sort of retaken by the the Tea Party, uh, you know, over the last couple of decades for potentially a new meaning. I'd say it's a mixture of both. I'd say about 50-50. So, for example, the Gadsden flag or the pine tree flag are 18th or 19th century symbols that have become increasingly more resonant with audiences. And we find that resonance because people are constantly looking for ways to differentiate their community and who they are. In the commercial world, we see this even more so. So football flags, for example, are creating record sales now Hmm. where they wouldn't in previous years. 
How does it come to be that older flags take on newer meanings? Like, how did it come to be that the Gadsden flag represented or came to represent what it did, or the Betsy Ross flag, or now uh, the, the an appeal to heaven flag? Like, how does that happen? How does that evolve? What's fascinating to me is that historically speaking, every flag um, that has been selected typically must go through a very material process of circulation such that enough audience members see that symbol and connect it to a particular ideology. So if we go back to the Gadsden flag, that flag has been linked to different causes over the years. And the more repetition of that flag with an associated cause helps us to understand how it becomes, say, associated with the Tea Party or associated with a particular type of Make America Great Again conservative, for example. Does it pose a challenge, though, if over the years it's associated with different causes? Like, does that make it more difficult for people to associate it with any one in particular? Yes. In fact, the more a symbol circulates with a assorted different links to different concepts or ideas, the more difficult it is to re-signify it or to move that symbol in different directions. The, so the Gadsden flag right now is seen as a very, very conservative symbol. Um, and yet it could mean other things. It could mean all sorts of things. So for example, in Texas, I see that flag all the time, but it means something different to Texans than it does to the rest of the United States. Uh, it tends to signify a Texan attitude more than a U.S.-based attitude. Ah. And in terms of the regulation of flags, I'm curious where you fall on that in terms of like homeowners associations or other entities trying to regulate what flags people are allowed to fly or not. Like are are some maybe so hurtful or inflammatory that, that they shouldn't be allowed to be flown in certain places? So I have... Three comments I'll make here. Um, the first is that a lot of neighborhood associations in Texas and in Arizona and many other states are banning the flying of political flags because they've seen how neighbors divide against one another when they fly those political flags. So I think the choice to ban certain flags is an attempt to create a stronger sense of belonging in a community. However, on the flip side of that, when you ban a flag, it creates sometimes more incentive for people to fly that flag. So there's a, a bit of a struggle there over what symbols can do and how we ought to ban them. That said, the most effective, and this is my third point, the most effective way to deal with sort of the struggle over symbols is to create community incentives toward belonging. So that's what I find so fascinating about the attraction to football flags or the attraction to community-based flags, say city flags, for example, mm -hmm. because those are an attempt to get away from the negative ideology that we see that often causes division. And during from 2016 through the present, flags have been flown often more to create division than to create connection. So I think what we're seeing in neighborhoods is a struggle over whether or not banning something actually helps create more community or whether or not community must be protected by protecting the symbol. Is it safe to say, do you think that the Internet and social media maybe more specifically have sort of accelerated the, the speed at which flags can be adopted by particular groups for particular causes? 
Yes. Um, throughout the history of different types of symbols, we see people attracted to those symbols over time. And it may take years historically for a symbol to reach prominence. Even something as simple as the American flag, for example, changed dramatically over the years. What we see in this moment is that the internet accelerates the pace at which those symbols become adopted dramatically to the point where a symbol can change now within a week to two weeks and dramatically change the way that culture and people respond to that symbol. Yeah, that is interesting. All right. Leslie, thank you so much for the conversation. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. Leslie Honor is a professor at Baylor University, where she studies the rhetoric of symbols and symbolism. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Our next guest has a name you might recognize. Where did Barbara Seville come from? There are a lot of drag names out there, like Eileen Over or Birth of a Nation. And I, I always think those names are kind of corny and stupid. Or like I've, I know like seven queens named Sharon Needles <laughs> or Sharon Husbands. So I knew I wanted a name that was funny but not hacky. Sure. And um, I was really obsessed with Barbara Streisand at that time. I was obsessed with Barbara Eden, Barbara Streisand, Barbara Gordon, um, <laughs> like just all these like 60s hyper femme over the top females. And so I knew I wanted my name to be Barbara. And so I just I kept saying Barbara, 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 Barbara Shop, Barbara, 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 Barbara Seville. And there's an opera <laughs> called The Barbara of Seville. Oh, there you go. Of course, that's the reference. How did yeah. I not get that? Yeah. Okay. And you know what? Um, I've interviewed several um, people through the years. And Cindy Lauper and RuPaul both said it's one of their favorite drag names ever. Barbara Seville, of course, is our next guest's stage name. His real name is Richard Stevens. You probably recognize the name Barbara Seville from the famous feud he had with then-GOP gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake in 2022. It exploded after Stevens spoke out about her attacks on the gay community, drag queens included, after having been a friend of his for more than 20 years. But Richard Stevens' story is a whole different one. He grew up as the youngest of nine kids and remembers performing from a very young age. He found drag as a teenager and has now been performing it in the Valley for 25 years. And when he found himself at the heart of the culture wars in our state, he told me he knew he was the right person to be there. I sat down with Stevens in our studios recently to learn more about his story and why he has always found himself performing, even as a kid. Here's our conversation in today's Deep Dive. Like a lot of Arizonans, I'm from the Midwest, specifically Ohio. But most of the, my brothers and sisters were sort of grown up and creating their own lives by the time we moved here. So I grew up really more with a smaller family unit. Mm. But um, those early years, those formative years, were surrounded by chaos and kids and <laughs> um, cousins and things like that. It sounds like you've always performed. I did. And I didn't, and I didn't really realize that until uh, later in life that – sort of being the youngest of nine kids or being really any part of a big family like that, you have to perform to mm. get attention. You've got to do something, whether it's acting out mm. <laughs> or literally acting. Sometimes you have to do something to uh, be the star of the show to get you know, some attention. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. What are your memories of that? Like, do you have specific movies you love, shows you loved that you would, you know, do with the family back in the day? Yeah, that, that's one really cool thing is I used to think my mom and dad just like – like loved us to like put on shows and things like that because they would always have us 
um, sing or um, do something when people came to our house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but also I remember my mom having us put on shows at like a senior home mm. and a nursing home. And at the time, I was like, oh, yeah, let's go do a show at the nursing home. But through the lens of an adult, I realize now that my mom was taking us to work. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she was like, hey, you guys go in there and sing a song. Because you know, my mom was a nurse's she aide a nurse for a short time. Yeah. And so um, that's probably what was going on. <laughs> so you have always performed then. But how did you get into drag? Like, how did you discover this? You've been doing it for a really long time. Yeah, I discovered it while I was pretty young. Like, I was still in high school when, wow. I, when I discovered it. But if you think about it, drag has been around your entire childhood. You've seen Bugs Bunny do it. You saw Robin Williams do it. You saw Jim Carrey do it. Like, it's just – it's always been there. But I, I think that my story is unique or interesting because the lens that I view it has was sort of through, like, the Carol Burnett show or Saturday Night Live or Tracy Ullman show yeah. where people would just be characters. Yes, there are so many good too. Like the ones I get watching the dawn come up and caress the deep purple walls of the Raytown Feeding Grain Emporium. Feelings. I would die without my Um, for this show, you would need to be a girl, or for this show, you would need to be an old man, or for this show, you would need to have an accent. Yeah. And I did all that stuff, you know, growing up. And then when drag presented itself, I was part of an LGBT youth group. Mm-hmm. It was a very small group. There was no government funding. It was like some serious dark times. And um, they were trying to raise money to just sort of pay their expenses and, you know, have coffee in a coffee pot type thing. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, how are we going to raise some money? And someone said, let's do a show. It was very Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, let's put on a show. Yeah. And we did a drag show fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And everyone else was lip syncing to Madonna or Jody Watley. That tells you how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I did sort of a sketch from Saturday Night Live. And we did it live. And people were like, oh, my God, you're really – like you're funny and you're just doing that yourself? Mm-hmm. And – that was that. That was that. So you so you fell in love with that. What was that like? I mean, being in an LGBTQ youth group, when was this? You must have been pretty young. Yeah, I was still 16 or 17 probably. Yeah. Um, and like the dress, I stole it from my mom's closet. Um, a girl who lived in our building did my makeup. But what what was it like? Um, I don't know. Like I, I never had any problems sort of like coming out. I never had any... Um, what am I? Like, I always knew that I liked boys when I was a little boy. Mm-hmm. I knew that – I just knew that I was gay as soon as I knew what gay was. Yeah. So I never had to come out. I never had to fight anything. I didn't have a, you know, a traumatic story. I wish I did. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I don't I don't wish that on you. And my family was so encouraging yeah. of, of some of our – our exploits. <laughs> That's amazing, right? Like, I mean, did you did you know at the time, like, how out of the ordinary that probably was? Well, our family was so out of the ordinary in so many <laughs> ways. That is just the 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 tiniest part of our abnormalities or our irregularities. <laughs> I remember that I didn't want my mom and dad to know I did drag, not because I was ashamed of doing drag. I just didn't think I was good at it yet, and I didn't want them to know. <laughs> so when you were good, you were then they could see. Absolutely. Oh, I love it. Absolutely. I love it. So you've always strived for perfection, it sounds like? 
Well, probably not perfection, but approval. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) The perfect sound effect. So when did you do drag again? You said not for quite a while after that. Um, I think I was probably 19 or 20. And um, I had a lot of friends that were older from the youth group. You know, Mm -hmm. like I was 16. And I think the youth group at that time went to like 22. And so I had some friends that were older than me. And someone said you could get into the bar if you were in drag (laughs) because they probably wouldn't card you. Yeah. yeah. So we did it on – we went to a bar on New Year's Eve because they were doing a costume contest. And we got in drag. What do you like about it? Um, Well, I like the freedom of Mm -hmm. just sort of like being a different person and sort of just creating a different personality. But also – I grew up watching the Carol Burnett show. I grew up watching Saturday Night Live. I grew up watching Tracy Ullman. I grew up watching In Living Color. So I loved all these sketch shows and I loved all these comedies. And I loved the idea that, you know, by putting on this hat, you became a different character. Mm -hmm. I loved that by putting on this accent, you became a different character. And so, and it wasn't always about me being a girl. It was just like, oh, now I'm this or now I'm that. But because of that, like watching all that growing up, to me, drag was just like, oh, yeah, I could try this and I could be a girl. And, I don't think I'm a girl. Don't get me wrong. You yeah. know, but like during those seven minutes that I'm on stage, you can't tell me anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the it's the embodiment of this sure. other person. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So talk a little bit about the growth of this character of sort of picking a character and staying with her for so many years and and just how much the drag scene here has grown in that time. I would say the biggest development of the character is that I have really nice clothes now. <laughs> <laughs> I have beautiful costumes that are made for me and I have beautiful wigs that are done for me and that I can do myself. And when I first started doing drag, it was um, stuff out of a thrift store. Sure. I, I really feel like a glamorous showgirl now whenever I do it. But I also like – I feel like there's, there's like a respect that has developed for drag. And I also mm-hmm. feel like there's a respect that has uh, developed for me and for what I contribute yeah. that, that if I may say so, I've earned. Yeah, 25 <laughs> plus years in the biz. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is longtime Phoenix drag performer Richard Stevens, otherwise known as Barbara Seville. We'll talk more about the growth of the drag scene here and the backlash to it after the break. Good morning. This is the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And we're back with more of my deep dive conversation with Richard Stevens, a.k.a. longtime Phoenix drag queen Barbara Seville. How do you feel about the growth of drag, like the popularity of it shifting so much? Was this like a, a good thing in most ways for you? Well, it's been a good thing, you know, from a financial standpoint. Absolutely. But I've I've been part of it for so long that I sort of saw it coming. So it's not like to me, you know, you just open the door and boom, it's right there. Like I saw it coming very gradually. And I've always been an outlier um, in that I I worked outside of traditional drag venues Mm -hmm. because I'm a hard worker and I'm responsible. I'm responsible. (laughs) Um, You know, I get invited into spaces that maybe a lot of drag entertainers don't. Uh, so I saw this coming, um, but it's in, it's insane to see it so – like it was on Jimmy Kimmel yesterday. Yeah. They had a drag queen story hour on Jimmy Kimmel yesterday. <laughs> it was a parody of it. Sure. You know, that wasn't happening when I was a kid. RuPaul's Drag Race changed a lot of this, but oh, it, much more beyond that. Yeah. It just completely – it blew the doors off of it. Yeah. It really did. You know, and that that to an extent – 
presented the backlash that we see because there's always a backlash to anything. Yeah. So let's talk about the backlash, right? Because at the same time or maybe not long after we saw this big rise in the popularity of drag and just the ubiquity of it being kind of all over the place. Of course, there has been a massive backlash and you have been a big part of that. People probably know your name in relation to Carrie Lake, right? Um, When she was running for governor, you didn't like what she had to say about drag queens, about the LGBTQ community in general. And you spoke out because the two of you had been sort of friends over the years. Did you feel like it was about more than just you? Yes and no. I mean, obviously, it wasn't just about me specifically, but it also isn't really about drag. It isn't about drag performers. It's Mm -hmm. about um, accumulating power. It's about accruing credibility. It's about um, getting hits on Fox News. It's about getting on – it's it's throwing meat to – you know, red meat to people who are mad. And the the expression that I used so frequently was um, when you go see the Eagles – they're going to play their hits. When you go see Madonna, they're going to play the number one hits. And for certain parts of the Republican Party, do you see how I phrase that? (laughs) For certain parts of the Republican Party, anti-LGBTQ content has always sent them to the number one spot, you know? How did it feel, though, to be the person at the center of that debate for a little while there? I mean, this must have been, you know, attention both positive and and negative, I'm sure. Correct. It was it was insane because I didn't expect it to happen like that. Mm. And then for like the first 36, 48 hours, nothing happened. And mm. I thought, oh, well, I was just screaming into the wind. And then like one day the dam broke and I was just inundated with um, so much stuff. Um, it freaked me out um, because I am a professional entertainer. I was like, oh, well, let's see where this takes you, you know, mm-hmm. you know, take mm-hmm. advantage of this. Maybe this will fill seats at some shows. <laughs> sure. Um but also when I realized exactly how how divisive it was, I realized that I was the right person to be in that moment hmm. because, you know, I, I'm well-spoken. You know, I'm lucky in that aspect. I have, you know, a decent education. I'm not afraid. Um, I'm also six foot tall, almost 200 pounds. Um, so I'm not easily intimidated. Sure. And I was glad that if this happened to somebody, that it happened to someone like me who – had the the strength physically and of character to mm-hmm. to fight back. Were there moments though when you where you felt afraid? There were a couple. Yeah. There were a couple of moments that were like truly like okay, what now? Um but honestly, it was like 2% like that. The other the other 98% were positive comments, they were encouraging comments, there were people and they tell you don't read the comments, and I don't ever read <laughs> the comments anymore after I saw some crazy things. But some of the comments were just like, wow, he's like my brother. Mm. Oh, that he reminds me of my nephew. He reminds me of my English teacher. Why would she do that to him? You know what I mean? And so I realized that like I was putting a human face to a caricature, you mm. know, which is what 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 they were trying to do do to the drag community. And the thing I always say, I don't want to perform for your kids. Kids don't have any money. <laughs> But that being said, you don't have to protect your kids from me. Mm -hmm. And this performance is appropriate for a Saturday night in a bar full of adults that are 21 that are drinking. And this content is appropriate for story time in a library. Sure. And most artists understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask you a little bit about the way you approached the media, the attention, like – 
You did these interviews for the most part, from what I can tell, as yourself, right? Like as Richard Stevens and sort of spoke, like you said, like a person putting a human face to this. Why did you approach it like that? I knew that if I rolled up on CNN in drag that people would say I was ugly, um, that I don't look like a girl, what's wrong with him, you know, and that they would try to offend me with those sort of things. Mm. And that that would become the conversation is what I was wearing. The the overtop Barbara Seville seen here in a $6,000 dress, you know, that's going to be the headline. Yeah. But I knew that if I presented myself the way I present myself 23 hours a day, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You know, that I would probably come off more authentic and people would see the truth behind my existence and the truth behind um, my words. Yeah. Do you feel like you are a representative for your community, like a, a defender in a way? Do you know what? I do wish I had Carrie Lake's filter. I would. I will say that. That's one thing I wish I had. Um, do I feel like a defender? I don't. Um, I, I'm, I'm telling my truth, and I'm, I love the idea that maybe somebody feels defended. That would be awesome. That would be really cool to, to, to think that somebody was like, oh wow, she stood and. and you're going to make me cry. Like there have been a couple of times where people have said, hey, thank you for doing that. And, hmm. um, you know, that was really cool. It meant something to some people. It did. It did. And I didn't know that until it was, you know, we were already in the thick of it. And I was like, well, there's no turning back now. <laughs> Richard Stevens, Barbara Seville, thank you so much. Aw, thank you. All right, that'll do it for this Wednesday edition of the show. We will, of course, be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at KJZZ The Show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.